Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. I am Jennifer Justice. Today, we have Fran Hauser. Fran is a an author, a startup investor, and a keynote speaker. And we're going to hear all about her journey, which is, again, as you hear from with all the women that I have on here, is very unique. Nothing is linear. And we're going to hear how Fran's not-so-linear career started and took off. Hi, how are you? Hi, JJ. How are you? Nice to see you. I love your blue background. It's nice. Oh my gosh. Thank nice you. contrast is my pink. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start by talking about what your career trajectory, how you started. Oh gosh. So my, I mean, I think you summed it up perfectly. Definitely not linear, much more of a jungle gym. When I think about my career, I actually started in public accounting. I majored in public accounting. I started in public accounting. So I worked at Pricewaterhouse. I worked at Ernst & Young. And, you know, when I think about like fast forward to what I'm doing now, which is so much more creative because I have this thought leadership practice, I write, I speak, I create content. Um, I still go back though to my public accounting days and I really appreciate kind of the financial foundation that it gave me, you know, like I understand money. I, I understand how to follow the money and even when I'm coming up with a, a creative idea, I'm always thinking about, okay, what's the business? You know, what's the business behind this? Um, I've pivoted a few times throughout my career. I think the most important pivot that I made was back when I was a Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola was a client of mine when I was in public accounting. Right. Coca-Cola, I was working in financial reporting, and then I was a controller. I decided to leave Coca-Cola. This was such a risky move to go work for Movie Phone back in 1997. Ooh, so Movie Phone was 777 film. Um, you remember the like the Seinfeld episode? So it was basically started as a phone number that you could call to get showtimes. Oh, so okay. a movie, you know, that was playing yeah. at a theater near you. And right around the time that the internet was getting going, the founders of Movie Phone were thinking about like, how do we take this phone service and move it online? So have, you know, provide movie showtimes and ticketing online. And I decided to leave Coke and go work at Movie Phone. And I just remember like the CFO at corporate <laughs> Coca-Cola calling me. And saying, what, what are you doing? Like, you can yeah. be the CEO of this company one day. And by the way, what is Movie Phone? Exactly the question you just asked me, JJ. Like, what are you doing? Right. Um, but I was really excited about digital and about the internet. And I really wanted to eventually move into more of a general management role. I felt that if I stayed at Coke, I would always be on that finance track. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm really happy that I, I made the move. Movie Phone ended up getting acquired by AOL. The founders of Movie Phone retired. And I ended up running Movie Phone as a division of AOL. So that was really my first general management role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I went to Time Inc. I was there for 10 years. I was the president of digital. It was my, you know, C-suite, I, you know, finally made it to the C-suite, um, which was amazing. And then 10 years ago, I left Time Inc. And I've been in this very kind of entrepreneurial world where I do startup investing. I, I write books, I speak, and it's kind of amazing. I feel like it's such a blessing that I can choose who I want to work with and what projects I want to work on. And my boys are 11 and 13. So like, I'm there for them. You know, like I always say, I love driving them places. It's like the one thing I won't outsource because it's the time that they actually like open up to me. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, I feel like I went through this sort of like corporate and then like startup and digital and internet and magazine publishing, and now into more of this entrepreneurial space. All right. So let's go back a little bit, because that's a lot, like that's more pivots than I even knew about. So, which I love, but what were you like, what was your thought process in, you know, leaving, I explained from movie phone, but like going to like quitting Time Inc., right? It was a really big job. Yeah. And how long were you there? 10 years, did you say? I was there for 10 years. Yeah. And yeah, it's so, you know, I would say around year eight, like year seven or year eight, I was starting to get a little antsy. Like I was, I was also seeing what was happening in the magazine industry, you know, like social media, um, had proliferated by that point, you know, people were moving more consumers and readers were moving more online. So there were all these threats really to the business. And we went from kind of being in building mode, which was, is always so much fun for me. Like launching people.com was really, um, I would say my biggest success at timing. You know, we went from it being me and my assistant having a hundred people working yeah. on that website. And it was, you know, it was the largest media site in the world. It was bigger than the New York times, CNN. Um, so that part of my job, I really loved by year seven, year eight, my job had gotten really big. I was president of digital for the company. I was far removed from the brands and from like the teams and we were in cost cutting mode. So I felt like my job had really become just more administrative, more like reporting to the board and always thinking about like, how, how can we cut corners and, you know, layoffs. So I started thinking about, okay, what would I want to do next? And I realized that the, the best part of my job at that point was meeting with startup founders. I got to meet like the founders of the skim before they launched and the founders of rent the runway. And, you know, all of these female founders would reach out to me because I was running digital, you know, at this big company Mm -hmm. and it was either to like partner with them or just to kind of mentor, give them advice. And I really, really, really loved that part of my job. And I, I actually went to our CEO and pitched the idea of creating an innovation lab at time Inc that I would run and where I could can work with these startup founders more closely and maybe acquire some of these companies. 
Um, and she she gave me the green light. And I think this is a good example to JJ, just to pause for a second of like, sometimes you might be in a role in a job where you're not feeling it. Like you're feeling like I'm yeah. kind of like ready to leave. It's such a great time to just reflect on like, is there any part of your job that you enjoy? Yeah. And can you double down on that? So I was able to get like two more years at Time Inc. by creating this opportunity for myself. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. so and thinking was- about everything else, that's a really good point. Thinking about everything else that you're good at, right. You started as an accountant, so you do have, you can understand, uh, you know, spreadsheets and you can understand like Excel, like, I don't yeah. like, I, it's my life's goal to die without ever knowing how to use an Excel um, spreadsheet. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's nothing in what I do that would make it so that I needed to learn how to do it. Um, but, you know, and that's, but I say that because it's like, you don't have to know everything, right? We always think that is like when we're founders who have our own business, we have to know every single part of it. You have to know enough to be able to tell somebody yes, yes no, and make decisions, but you're hiring experts, Right. We've heard the, you know, we've all heard like hire people that are smarter than you. How can you be the smartest person in the room if you're hiring people smarter than you, you know? Right. No, but also like talk about it a lot on this. It's like using the other things that you've done and looking at what you're good at and what you're really like and, you know, merge and what those. you really like, right. What yeah. you're good at and what you really like, right. Yeah. And I, and also then that gave me the opportunity to meet all these startups. And I decided that I wanted to, as a side hustle, start investing and in, in some of these startups and advising them. And, you know, it was tricky. You'll appreciate this. I had to get my general counsel at the company to approve, you know, to sign off every single in, yeah. on every single investment. Like he actually, the, the one that got away was I would have been one of the first investors in Rent the Runway. But Maurice Edelson, our general counsel, rightfully so, wasn't comfortable with that because we had InStyle and he thought that Rent the Runway could potentially be an acquisition target at some point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I started as a side hustle, just investing, like investing, advising. And I realized I really loved doing that. And my kids were three and 18 months at the time. And I just wasn't seeing them that much. You know, I had a really big job. At that point, we had moved out of the city. I was commuting into the city. Um, And it was so scary. It was honestly, it was more scary for me to leave time than it was to leave Coke because with time, I felt like I had this huge platform where I could pick up the phone and call anybody and get a call back. Mm -hmm. And I was so scared about like going out on my own and, you know, was my personal brand strong enough, you know, and to, to make this transition. But what I realized was that I had developed so many incredible relationships over the years and all of those people supported me in my transition and they opened doors, whether it was startup founders, investors, you know, they all opened doors for me. And, but I really remember like how nerve wracking it was. It took me two years to actually like pull the trigger and say like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I remember doing the same, leaving Jay Z and going, oh, "Okay, is anybody going to answer my phone call ever again?" And it turned out they did. You know, did. And it's yeah. like once your legacy is that way, you've done something. You know, it can take that away from you. You still, That's right. you know. Right. Okay, so you decide you're going to leave. Did you know what you were going to do? Was there like a business plan or a, any kind of deck vision mission kind of thing? 
My plan was really just to kind of leverage my existing network. I had developed relationships with a bunch of female founders in the city, in New York. And they were truly, really my inspiration for focusing on female founders because what I learned at that time was that only 2% of venture capital funding was going to women. And I thought, wow, like I'd love to be a part of changing that. And, you know, JJ, we talk about this all the time, right? We talk about the small percentage of funding that goes to women. We're still talking about this 10 years later, but back then I really felt like I was, I was kind of ahead of the curve, you know, like female founders fund was just launching Mm -hmm. a new Duval. Um, I was one of the first LPs in that fund. I was still working at Time Inc. when she reached out to me. So, and then Soraya Darabi, who was a founder, she, I had coffee with her one day outside the Time Life building at um, La Pan Quotidienne. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, she said, Fran, when I look around, I see all these female founders, but they don't have female investors. They don't have female advisors. They don't have female mentors. Like you could be that person. Like I really, I remember that conversation with Soraya. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a very profound like moment for me. So that was really my plan was um, to support female founders and to really work my network to, because the first priority was just deal flow, right? I had to let people know that now I was doing this, that I was investing. So the other thing that I did, which is super tactical was I launched a website. I launched franhauser.com, you know, and and just sort of put that that shingle up, letting the world know that, you know, I'm investing, that that's what I'm doing now. And I started using my social media to let people know. But that was really that was the plan. Right. And so at that point you done some investing in female founders, right? So you did the female founders fund and any individual ones at that point? I had, I had done, um, I had invested in Levo. Uh, Caroline Gohn was the founder of Levo. I had invested in Hullabaloo, which neither one of these companies are around. And then they, they opened doors for me. You know, they introduced right. me to other people. So like, that's just kind of how, how it works. So with female, but with investing, um, angel investing, I love talking about this topic because people think it's so, you know, like unattainable, right? There's so many different ways to do it. And then, so when you look at a new company, like what are your considerations? It's great that, like you said, you can read an Excel spreadsheet and you can like, you know, accounting and you can get into the financials. What are things that you look for other than the obvious, like, do you think this is going to make money? Yeah. The biggest thing that I that I look for is like, is there a real pain point that's being solved, you know, and is there a big enough market with that pain point? So that's a big piece of it. And then the other big piece is the founder. Like I really pay attention and I kind of, I would say this was the biggest mistake that I made very early on when I started angel investing is that I didn't listen to my gut enough about the founder. Mm -hmm. Like I remember investing in one company early on where I left the lunch meeting feeling icky. Like there was just something off and I ended up investing anyway, because I was so in awe of the other investors that were on board, like yeah, really yeah. big, like A-list names. I'm really, I, I don't know. It's like, I'm kind of bummed that I did that because I suppressed my own, 
you know, like I gave them more power. Yeah. I gave these investors more power yeah. than my own thoughts and feelings. And yeah. right. But now, like, I know, like, I really pay attention when I'm like with, when I'm meeting with a founder, like, are they open to feedback? Are they like, are they listening? You know, some founders, like I find like, if they're very dismissive, that concerns me, mm-hmm. you know? So are they, are they good at listening? Are they good at accepting feedback? Um, Am I energized when I leave my time with them? Because it's a long-term relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. these companies, you know, like it takes seven to 10 years for them to get acquired or or for them to IPO. So I really want to, I want to make sure that I, I feel like this is somebody who I really enjoyed this conversation with them. They're solving a really big problem. I want to help them. I want to be a part of it. So like, you know, we all talk about um, product market fit. I really think about founder market fit. Like, is Mm -hmm. this you know, is this the right person to be solving this problem? Like what's yeah. their experience? What do they bring to the table? Do they have the right relationships, the network? So it's really a, co- a combination of, of all of those things. And yeah. I've invested now, JJ, in over 30 companies. You're in over 30 now? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I've been angel investing since like 2010, 11 as well. So a long time. And recently I was at something as well. And my gut was like, I just don't get it. It's not resonating with me, but the people investing and everybody in the room was just like, here's a check. And, you know, here's a check. And I I mean, I just don't get it, but you know, maybe I'm wrong, but still, you know, you have to trust your gut no matter what. Uh, because when you're looking at these people and you're right, a lot of people look at the founder and they look to see if they think that they can take this through. And, you know, I'm interested to get your take on this because, you know, obviously a founder, like we just said, we can't do everything. Right. And, you know, what are the characteristics of a founder that you find can be more successful? And I'll kind of say what I mean. It's like, you know, for me, it's like knowing what they don't know and that they're going to hire someone. And if at the right point they need to step aside and not be the CEO, but still be the founder and on the board, obviously, then that they should do that. Like, that's really important to me. I couldn't agree more. That is so important. And I also think, um, you know, I look for adaptability. I look for people that are, that are adaptable because, you know, like with these companies, especially in consumer tech, which I'm actually doing less of Mm -hmm. um, because there's just so much risk there, but especially with consumer tech where the product will pivot so many times. And, you know, so as a founder, you really need to be open to that. You need to be open to iterating. You need to be really open to customer feedback. Um, I, you know, I have worked with a couple of founders where they were just so um, uh, set on their, their original vision, you know, and it was just really hard for them to move away from it. Mm -hmm. And so the adaptability part, I think is, is really important. Look, the other thing is I also do back channeling on founders because I want to understand not just what they've accomplished, but how, like, how do they go about um, working with other people? Are they collaborative or, you know, like the how is really important to me. And I can look at a resume, I can look at a bio and say, oh, wow, this is great. Like they've achieved all of these amazing things, but I will like look for mutual connections or, you know, people who I can kind of like, just ask, like, tell me, what was it like working right. with that? What is, yeah. what did that look like? Yeah. I think all of that is really important. Yeah. So you do some real, get some real intel and research. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, okay, so you're in over 30 companies and do you invest directly or through SPVs or both? I've done both. I've, you know, it's it's interesting. The whole SPV thing, I feel like it really kind of took off right after COVID. Yeah. Um, so let's just for everybody listening, SPV is called special purpose vehicle. And it is an entity that you can form where if you don't have like, let's say a lot of minimums are $25,000 and up. If you don't have that, you, you know, whoever's running the SPV might have their own minimum, but it's typically around 5,000. I've seen some as low as like 2,500. So you can then invest into the SPV, the SPV then invest into the company. And it's an over, it's a little bit of, it's pretty much what it is. Not completely oversimplified, but yes. Yeah, no, I I love it because I feel like it makes it makes angel investing more accessible. Yeah, um, you know, I've led a handful of SPVs over the last couple of years, and I've had so many first time angel investors come in through those SPVs because, you know, they were more comfortable investing twenty five hundred or five thousand. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I've done I've done both, and I've also invested in in funds. And the way that I think about funds is like, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, I invested in gather ventures, which is all about plant-based foods. Mm -hmm. I just, I think this is a huge market. It's a growing market, but I don't have the expertise. Like for me to like build expertise and like vet all of these companies, like I would rather invest in somebody who's the expert. And so like, that's kind of how I think about, do I invest in a fund versus do I go direct? Like for me, I'm going to go direct in spaces where I personally have experience and networks, you know, Mm -hmm. where I really feel like I can add value beyond the check. So that's kind of how I think it, like there's funds, then there's, there's companies that I'll invest directly in. And then if I really believe in the company, I'll even lead in an SPV. Right. Amazing. Yeah. See, there's all these different ways. And when she's talking about funds, you're talking about venture funds. So yes. like, yeah, exactly. Yes. And an LP is a limited partner and you usually have to put in a minimum there as well, which is usually a lot more zeros. than. <laughs> yes. Those tend, those tend to be higher. Those tend to be a minimum of 50, a hundred. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen it more like 250, 250 now. Yeah. It's quite a bit, um, but all great because you're doing it in, you know, your purpose. I'm sure you sleep very well at night. So, <laughs> so uh, let's get into like other areas. You are an author, keynote speaker. I know that people call you the book whisperer and um, you help. So what are the other areas that you're, you know, working with women? Oh gosh. Well, I, I think the most rewarding part of my career has been being being an author. And maybe it's because it's something that I've always wanted to do, like ever since I was a little girl. And it just seemed so unattainable. You know, like it was just one of those things, like it was just like such a big dream, like the thought of like actually being an author. And so I've written two books, The Myth of the Nice Girl and Embrace the Work, Love Your Career. And um, the myth of the nice girl came out five years ago. Now it's been out for five mm-hmm. years, and I have to tell you, JJ, it's just so rewarding. Like women are still posting about that book on social media. You know, like this idea of you don't have to choose between being kind and being strong, and right. that's really the, the whole premise of the book. That's the way that I've led my life. You know, in my career. And so like seeing the impact that that book has made, it's been translated into eight languages. 
it's just really, really super rewarding. And what happened, which I really wasn't expecting this at all, was I wasn't like strategic. I know a lot of people are strategic about, I'm going to write a book and then I'm going to be a speaker. The speaking just kind of happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've done over 200 talks now over the last five years. I have like a really great speakers bureau. And I just wasn't expecting that to be like such a big part of my life. You know, like I, I kind of looked at speaking as more of a marketing thing for the book. Like, okay, I'll do some talks and like companies can buy like hundreds of copies of the book. And I was thinking about it as more of a marketing channel for the book. And now speaking has become like its own kind of revenue stream for me, you know, in in my business, which is really, really cool. So I feel like in terms of helping women, you know, my books are really all about how do you achieve a career you love while staying true to yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's a place and a space that I create for women that I love. I'm also helping women launch their own books, their, you know, nonfiction books, which um, I'm just having so much fun with. I I started a new company called Bookbound. Um, So that's its own website, bookboundco.com. And I, you know, I help with everything from like, you have an idea for a book, but you're not quite sure how to get it published. Like, should you go the traditional route? Should you Mm self-publish? There's a fairly new publishing uh, path, which is called hybrid publishing. So I kind of like break it down and help you figure out like, what's your path? And then on the back end, so that's like one area of expertise. And then on the back end, it's your book is coming out. How do you market? How do you launch your book? So like, those are kind of the two, like my two sweet spots, I would say. So I'm really enjoying that work. So when you're talking about, it's all amazing. Like, I mean, there's so many people on here. I'm like, wait, how do I get in touch with her? So when you're talking to, um, you know, women, and I find that I do this too quite a bit about, you know, I'm on, you know, podcasts or something that's, that the audience is really kind of like college age and, and going into their first jobs about, you know, having a job that, you know, and not forgetting about your authentic self and your life. You know what I mean? Like the music industry, for instance, is very difficult with that. Like, you know, I was clearing songs that called women hoes and, you know, but yeah, it's really hard when you're younger. What kind of advice do you give them when they're younger and trying to do that? You know, it's hard to yeah, find it is. a job. It's easier it's when really- you're older and you can be like, okay, I can make choices. You know, you have a lot of experience yeah. and people, yeah. a lot of different kinds of people want you and you can, you usually have a job where you can change culture, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It is so much harder when you're younger um, and you're, you know, early on in your career. I mean, the one thing that I'll say is that I found, especially early on in my career, when I tried to take on a persona that like wasn't authentic to who I am. Like people would always tell me like, you're too nice. You need to toughen up, go over that person's head. But like, and whenever I, whenever I took that advice, I ended up feeling like so uncomfortable in my own skin Mm -hmm. and my confidence actually went down. Cause I do think there's a correlation between like when you're working in a way that's, that's really aligned with your values you're just more comfortable and you're bound to be more confident. Yeah. And so that's my biggest advice to like to younger people is like really like to to tune into that and to really be aware of that that I think that you can actually do much better work 
when you're comfortable in your own skin yeah. and you're confident. So like, and, and I'm, and I agree with you, it is definitely harder because you don't have as much authority. Right. Mm-hmm. But just to really like pay attention to that. Like when you're making those choices, pay attention to that. Somebody also just recently asked me this question. So I'm going to ask you, um, how do you know that when like, that's a great example. You should just go over their head. How did you know it wasn't fear of going over their head versus in your intuition? Oh, fear uh, for myself, like going over. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, see in that. So in that example, which was, I actually took the advice and I did go over the person's head, which was just, it ended up being a disaster um, because I really, it, it ended up hurting my relationship with this woman. And then I had to repair that relationship. I mean, I remember having to go out to lunch and apologize. And um, so it was just really bad advice that I took. But I think for me, it was just, I think it was an intuition thing that like, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't. It's not who I am. I would never go over this person's head, but I have this like senior level person telling me to go over her head. So Mm -hmm. I listened to his advice Instead of going with my gut, again, it goes back to like, instead of going with my gut and who I am at my core. No, I know I've made those mistakes a few times myself and it never feels good. And it always ends badly. It always always ends badly. Yes. You're always going to piss somebody off. Always know that. Like if, you know, the senior executive is probably like, why wouldn't you listen to me if you didn't do it? And then you pissed off your boss while by doing it, you know? Right. I know. I know. It's a hard situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I know that we have to let you go very soon, but you know, I know that you also just gave something that was probably the worst piece of advice you've ever received, but there is a portion of here that we do ask every woman, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> mm, okay. So I, gosh, I've, I've gotten some like real doozies over the course of my career. Um, one specifically that I remember is again, it was early in my career and I asked my manager if I could attend a conference. It was like a trade trade industry conference. Um, and he said to me, he said something along the lines of like, Fran, you know, just keep your head down and do great work. Okay. That's how you're going to get ahead here is just do great work. And of course we all want to do great work. But what I realized later on was that he was prioritizing output over relationships, Mm -hmm. right? And relationships are just as important, if not more important than the work. Because again, like we just talked about this career, this varied career that I had and all the pivots. And I couldn't have made those pivots if it weren't for the connections Mm -hmm. that I had made. So I think this like idea of like, just keep your head down, you know, at the computer and like get your work done is really bad. It's just really bad advice because I watched in the magazine industry, the people who did that, the people that were heads down at their computer and they weren't paying attention to what was going on in the world and everything going on with digital. And, you know, they weren't building relationships and like expanding their network. It was really hard when the magazine industry imploded for those people to find another job, to figure out what their next chapter is going to be. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely up there in terms, in terms of worst advice. The, what is so crazy, that is exactly the worst advice I tell all the time too, because, and you're the first person in almost 200 interviewees, I mean, almost a hundred, sorry, interviewees that has said that. And 
It is exactly the advice when I first got to the entertainment law firm. Just, you know, put your head down, do the work and you'll be great. Well, no, like part of what I needed to do, and you're right, it is output versus relationship, but it's also, that's great advice for him that gave it to me because that was my boss telling me just do the work while I go out and make all the relationships, bring work for then you to be the busybody doing it all here. Yeah. Right. Right. That's and, right. And, He's the one bringing in the business, doing yeah. the business. development. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in legal, it's like, there's three kinds of people. There's finders, minders, and grinders, right? It's the finder who makes all the money, not the person grinding away every day. And look, that is a great job if you like that. And if you want to be in a place, it's like, stable and you know you want you just want to work in the same company that's fine okay no one's telling you to be an entrepreneur but if you want to be an entrepreneur you have to get out there and people need to know who you are you need to do great work because you can know everybody yeah but if you're not doing great work you're not gonna be hired right you know same with like pr it's like you do all the pr in the world but if somebody you know hires you and whatever he says you're so great at is not good then that's an issue you know so, oh my God, I just got the chills. I know. It's crazy. That's your right? advice too. Yeah. Yeah. And I've really, just really, everything you just said, like resonates with me so much. Yeah. I can't even tell you. Yeah. So. yeah. so listen up people who are listening. <laughs> Don't take that advice. Uh, do not take that advice. Do not take that Walk advice. away with nothing else from this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Walk yeah. away with that. Um, well, thank you so much. If people want to find you in all your various, um, you know, different roles, how do they do that? Let's start with the book. Yeah. So The Myth of the Nice Girl and Embrace the Work, Love Your Career are available, you know, everywhere. Um, Franhauser.com is my website and I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. And what about the book, your book business now? Without oh, bookbound, bookboundco.com. Love it. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on here. It was like Thanks so for having much, me, like, You're the best. Wealth of advice, especially for you know women who are just like starting out and want to write that book or they want to start the company or get an angel investor like you. So it was awesome. Thank you. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.